Thank you, choir, for leading us in worship. This is going to be a test for me. How long can you stand on one leg? We'll find out for me. I have a stool back here if I get cramp, you know, cramp up or something, but as it stands right now, I'm going to try to stand for most of the service today. We'll see how that goes. We are into our Advent series here. First week of Advent, we are going to look at the gospel according to Luke, chapter 1, uh, beginning, how, how does Luke look at the very beginning of the gospel? Uh, different gospel writers start at a different place. John starts the earliest. In the beginning, we read this during the Advent uh, um, reading here, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So he starts in eternity past, right? Uh, Matthew starts with a genealogy of the Old Testament, but then really goes to the birth of Jesus. Mark's gospel begins with Jesus as an adult. He skips over the Christmas narrative entirety. Luke begins a little earlier than the life of Jesus. He begins with the parents of John the Baptist. And I've preached, I don't know how many Christmases now, um, probably 12 for, for the last, you know, as senior pastor and as even as an associate, I was doing some of the Christmases. And I realized I've never actually done this very beginning of Luke. So I'm glad to do that. And what we see here is that God is at work among his people. He is preparing the way to do a mighty and glorious work. Now understand, of course, this is a once in a not only a lifetime, once in a history uh, work of God, bringing ultimately Jesus into our world, the coming of Emmanuel, the coming to redeem, to, to come and redeem and to save us. But I do think there are some pretty clear principles of how God prepares to work that actually apply not just to then, but also to our lives today. That when God is at work among his people, this is how he works. So we're going to look at Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. Looking at a lengthy section, verse 5 to verse 25. We'll have it up on the screen. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Now, while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. And the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. And your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord 
a people prepared. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized that he had a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among the people. This is the word of the Lord, and may God add his blessing to the reading and the proclamation and the receiving of his word. This morning, here's where we're going. God is at work among his people, five through seven. Be prepared. Be prepared for God to use you. Uh, 8 to 17, do faithful ministry. And then finally, 18 to 25, watch God's Spirit at work. Watch His Spirit at work. So first, looking at 5 to 7, be prepared for God to work. Uh, You can't make God work. You can't force God's hand. But we'll see how God really prepared both Zechariah and Elizabeth to be used by the Lord in a powerful and a mighty way. This is in the days of Herod. Herod is the king of Judea. You may think, well, how can there be a king if Caesar alone is king. Well, Caesar allows puppet kings. He allows those to serve under his own authority. Herod can serve so long as he doesn't cause too much trouble. Otherwise, Caesar will remove him. Herod is not even Jewish. He's Idumean, but he sort of is uh, over that area. Herod the Great, this is. Eventually, Herod Antipas, that's one of his sons, plays a big role. Um, Herod's a bad guy, all right? He is the one responsible for the slaughter of the innocents, as we see in the book of Matthew. But he says there is a priest named Zechariah. This is a no-name priest, all right? He's no no one that you would know from Scripture uh, anywhere else. Uh, He comes out of nowhere right here. He's just an average priest, I guess you could say, in Israel. He's of the division of Abijah. So by this time, there are a lot of priests, like thousands and thousands and thousands of priests in Israel. Uh, To be a priest, you have to be part of the tribe of Levi. Levi is one of the 12 tribes, but that's not enough. There are a lot of Levites. They all have a responsibility in serving in the temple, but they're not all priests. You have to be a descendant directly from Aaron in order to be a priest. And there are, even then, still a lot of descendants at that point in time. Israel is broken up into 24 different divisions of priests. And Abijah is one of them, kind of the lesser-known, not-so-important groups there. Each group has about 1,000 priests, according to the Talmud, a little later on. And they're given, each group is given two weeks of the year, two separate, not right back to back, two weeks of the year in which they are responsible to serve at the temple. One of those thousand priests will be chosen by lot. A lot is kind of like dice. Um, And only once in their entire lifetime. It's a once in a lifetime experience. When you get chosen by lot, you get to go into the holy place. Now, the holy place is not the holy of holies. Only the high priest goes there once a year. That's where the ark used to be. The ark is long gone at this point in time. But your once-in-a-lifetime experience to enter into the holy 
place. And of course, that's what we'll see in a little bit happens to Zechariah. But he's described here as having a wife named Elizabeth, and Elizabeth is also from the daughters of Aaron. Now, that wasn't necessary. You could be a priest and be married to any other Jewish woman, any Jewish woman. You, you did not have to be, uh, marry another priest or another, even someone from the tribe of Levi, but in this case, they're both descendants specifically of Aaron from many, many, many years before. And look what he says about them in verse 6. Luke says, they were both righteous before God. Now you might say, Pastor Rick, didn't we just study Romans that said, no one is righteous, no, not even one, right? So how are they both righteous? In fact, it says, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and the statutes of the Lord. Luke is not saying they are perfect. He's not saying they are sinless. In fact, to be a righteous person, a zadakim in Israel, meant that you are a Torah-abiding citizen. You are someone who obeys the law, takes it seriously, including the sacrificial system, which admits that you're a sinner in need of a savior, right? In fact, Zechariah is a priest. His whole job is to offer sacrifices for sin. So he has no sort of illusion that he is a sinless human being. He is not. He is, however, a faithful Israelite, faithful Jew, seeking to serve the Lord to the best of his ability, along with his wife, by the grace of God. And we learn in verse 7, one more thing about them. They had no child because Elizabeth was barren. They had gone many, many years. They're both well advanced in years and unable to have children. And the scene is set for God to work. How is this scene set? Well, a couple of things. First of all, uh, you have two people who are seeking the Lord. Again, they're not, they didn't earn God's work. They didn't earn the fact that they're going to be the parents of John the Baptist. It's not as if they sort of put in the right amount of time and effort and energy, and now God is somehow compelled to use them. But they set the stage. They sought after the Lord. They sought to do what is right in his eyes. More than that, they're two broken people. They have gone their entire adult lives wanting a child and unable to have one. And it has been a source of immense pain. How do I know that? Because Elizabeth says it at the end of this passage. God has taken away my reproach among the people. You can imagine starting off in their marriage, excited. They're both from the line of Aaron. Zechariah is rising in the priesthood and faithfully serving in Israel. And they're hopeful they're going to have a a child and they're going to have sons and daughters and their sons are going to be children of Aaron as well. They're going to be priests and they're going to take Zechariah's role and they're going to serve in the temple someday in the future as well. And as the years go by, year after year after year, unable to have children and feeling the reproach of those around them. Yes, they're righteous. Yes, they're good people, but they don't have God's blessing because they don't have a child and the reproach that they're getting from their neighbors. They're broken, and God loves to use broken people, right? So here's how you prepare the way (laughs) for God to use you, friends, right? First of all, trust in his righteousness. So we have a fuller picture than both Zechariah and Elizabeth. They're trusting the sacrificial system. They're trusting that God's grace will be sufficient as provided through sacrifices, goats and lambs and bulls. We know as Christians the full picture that these bulls and lambs and goats only point to something far greater, far more importantly, the consummation of history, 
Jesus Christ and his death for us on the cross, which is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. As Hebrews says, all of that, all that sacrificial system was just a foreshadowing, pointing us to the real thing, the substance, which is Jesus. So as Christians, we hold on to the righteousness of Christ, as we studied in Romans for week after week, and we pursue obedience. There's still sort of growth in grace that comes, seeking to come into line with God's word and to live faithfully before him. Seek to serve him in the way that God has called you to serve him. Be, if you're a husband, be a godly husband. If you're a wife, be a godly wife. If, you're, if you have kids, try to raise your kids in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. Be a godly example to them. Um, go about your job. If you're a carpenter, be a carpenter to the glory of God. If you are a lawyer, be a lawyer to the glory of God. Do what you're supposed to do. Be where you're supposed to be. Do what you're supposed to do. Seek righteousness. Not that we'd ever attain it of our own, trusting in God's grace, but we seek to do what's right. And secondly, embrace your brokenness. Truth of the matter is, we're all broken, right? Now, their brokenness is this barrenness. For you, maybe it's something different. Maybe it's something in your past, something in your history that you can't get rid of. Maybe it's a temptation that you're continually facing today, and you know that's a struggle, whether it's an addiction to something. Maybe it's a deep sense of grief. Maybe it's a broken relationship, a broken, a struggle within your marriage, or maybe it's always feeling like you didn't achieve what you wanted to achieve in life, at work, or whatever that brokenness may be. Don't let it limit you. God uses brokenness, right? You, you could say, well, why didn't God do this when they were in their 30s? Because it took another 50 years or whatever, we don't know actually how old they are, For them to realize how broken and needy and dependent upon God they really are before he starts to use them. Uh, As it's been said, we can sort of set the altar, like in Elijah with the prophets of Baal, but we can't light the fire, right? So here's the altar set. Seek after God prayerfully. Seek to do what is right in his eyes and embrace the fact that you and I were just broken people depending upon his grace. And then God will do what God wills to do. More than that, go about faithful ministry. Go about faithful ministry. Look at verses 8 to 17. Uh, It's not just being prepared uh, and doing what you're supposed to do, but also seeking to serve. Of course, here, uh, Zechariah's job is specifically to serve as a priest. That's not for everyone. It's not for everyone in Israel, but it's specifically his job. By the way, notice that God works within Israel. Uh, the, this is not sort of the gospel is not God rejecting Israel and saying, no, you guys did it all wrong, and I'm going to show you how to do it right, and this is the way to go it. Uh, you've seen maybe some of this rise in anti-Semitism, and some people sort of cloak that in Christianity. There is, are a few things as antithetical to Christianity as anti-Semitism. We literally, literally worship a Jewish Messiah, guys, right? It doesn't make any sense. The early church was Jewish. Um, all of the apostles were Jewish. The whole Old Testament is God's election of Israel as his people, right? doesn't fit. God is working within his entire system, and he works through the priesthood to eventually bring about what his will is. Look at verse 8. Well, they're serving as priests before God when his division was on duty. According to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot. Now, he's an old man at this time. So finally, finally, he's chosen by lot. This is his once-in-a-lifetime opportunity, um, and he gets to go into the temple to burn incense, into that holy 
place, the place where only priests were allowed to go. In that room, it's a pretty small room, you can see the curtain towards the Holy of Holies, which you can't go in, but there are only three items in that room. There is the altar of incense, which he's supposed to offer incense on. There is the golden lampstand, and then there is the table of showbread. And Josephus, the famous historian, said this, these three are the most wonderful works of art, universally renowned. Beautiful. And of course, most people never get to see them. (laughs) So try to picture this. Uh, I think we can sort of read through this and not realize how stunning this must have been for Zechariah. He's nervous. He's excited. This is his once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. He goes in there and sees these beautiful works of art in this small room. He's in there by himself. He's probably shaking a little bit, and he gets ready to offer the incense. And what happens an angel of the Lord appears to him. Can you imagine the terrifying fear he must have felt at that moment? Out of nowhere appears a human-like figure to the right of the altar of incense. And what do you think his response to that is? He is terrified, as you might say. Verse 12, And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. I don't think that any, if you guys were in a room, you know, even just your own bedroom, all by yourself, and uh, all of a sudden a person appeared out of nowhere in there, I think you would be terrified as well, right? You get the idea here? He is scared out of his mind, but notice what the angel says, do not be afraid, Zechariah. I'm not come for judgment. I have not come here to condemn you. I've not come here to kill you. Instead, I've come to tell you some good news. Your prayer has been heard. Now, what prayer does he have in mind? A lot of people might think that the prayer is for a child. Probably not. Um, He probably prayed a lot for a child in his earlier days when he was in his 20s and 30s and so forth, but by now I think he's probably come to grips with the fact in his own mind that they're not going to be having a child after all. His prayer as a priest should have been for the redemption of Israel, awaiting the coming of the Messiah. And so the promise is your prayer has been heard and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son. Here is the fulfillment of the great promise of God, and you'll call his name John, which means the Lord's gracious, the Lord's gift. He describes here who John will be. You will have joy and gladness, all that pain, all that suffering, all that loss over the years, loss of hope, and many will rejoice at his birth, not just you, not just his family, all Israel, for he will be great before the Lord He must not drink wine or strong drink. Those are not condemned universally for for Christians or for Jewish people. But there was something called the Nazarite vow. Um, The Nazarite vow had three sort of requirements. You can't cut your hair. You can't touch a dead body. You can't drink wine. Um, And if you know the story of Samson, what happens, right? He touches a dead body, a dead lion, and then he um, gets drunk. And then the last thing he does is cuts his hair or lets his hair get cut and God's blessing is removed from him. That doesn't seem to be a full Nazarite vow, but at least this one portion for him, he will not drink alcohol his entire life. He'll be filled instead with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And then he says in verse 16, it's easy to miss, really a fulfillment of prophetic Uh, prophecy from the old testament 16 and he will turn many of the children of israel to the lord their god and he will go before him in the spirit in the power of elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the lord a people prepared those are the final words of the old testament 
that God would send before the great day of the Lord, the coming of the Messiah, he will send Elijah to come and prepare the way. And when he does so, he will turn the hearts of the children to their fathers and the fathers to their children. Now, what he says here is that John, your son, will be the Elijah to come. Not that he's literally Elijah. I don't think that's the point of the prophecy. But rather that he will fulfill this role. He comes as one like Elijah. Elijah was known as sort of a wild man living out in the wilderness, eating locusts and wild honey, um, and wearing a camel hair and a leather belt. And that's exactly what John does. He lives out in the wilderness wearing camel hair and a leather belt, and his proclamation is to repent and to prepare the way for one greater who is to come. You know, this sort of prophecy about turning the hearts of the fathers to their children, um, I used to always take that as kind of a family promise. Like, you know, your dads, you're going to love your kids better, and kids, you're going to love your dads better, right? That's how I've heard it. It's kind of a promise keeper type verse. Um, in studying this, I learned, I don't think that's what he's getting at, actually, um, because when you think of John the Baptist's ministry, it, it really, I mean, that may have been one small part of his ministry, but it really wasn't about being better dads, right? That just wasn't his main thing. I think what he's getting at is turning the hearts of the fathers to the next generation, looking to see what God is doing next, that the great work of God is yet to come. In fact, the way he interprets, Luke here interprets, or the angel, you could say, interprets uh, the hearts of the children to their fathers is the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, bringing them to a spirit of repentance in preparation for what God is doing going forward. God is at work. What we see here is Zechariah went about doing faithful ministry. It's in the middle of him doing what he always does, serving as a priest, serving the temple, serving the people who come there, and doing what he's supposed to do. It's not just Zechariah. What, what are all the rest of the priests doing? It says they're all outside there praying the whole multitude of them, praying as he goes in there. They're doing what they're supposed to do in terms of ministry. And the prophecy is, your son, John the Baptist, is going to be doing faithful ministry himself, calling people to repentance, getting them ready for the coming of the Messiah. Friends, if, if you want to see God at work in your life, it's not just enough to be prepared, be a faithful husband, father, pastor for me, uh, or whatever, carpenter, lawyer, whatever you're called to be, Go about doing faithful ministry. Now, by that, I'm not saying you have to do what I do or what the person next to you does. You have to do what God is calling you to do. You certainly don't have to do what Zechariah does. If he's calling you to do some evangelism, you should be doing evangelism, reaching your family, your friends, your neighbors. If he's calling you to serve the church and join up and help out at open hearts, then help out at open hearts. If he's calling you to get up there and sing and lead us in the choir, then get up there and sing and lead us in the choir. If he's calling you to be involved in some official program here at the church, then do that. If not, if it's more organic, just serving him, then get about doing the work of God and wait to see how God uses that. As we, we're called to serve. Ministry means service. How is God calling you to serve? And maybe you're thinking, I don't know how God is calling me to serve. Well, then jump in and try something, right? Um, I, I was talking to someone whose gift is giving, and they said they just love giving. They're always looking for opportunities to give, and whenever an opportunity comes, they're happy to do it. It's not, it's not a, it doesn't feel like a sacrifice. They just enjoy the fact that they get to give. And uh, for most of us, it's not quite that 
great to, to, to give um, as that. Some people are called to serve behind the scenes, to cook meals, to clean. I know there are folks, they would not want me to mention this, but are here doing the dirtiest jobs, cleaning the toilets here at the church, or literally cleaning up areas outside the church that people are using as toilets that aren't toilets. Uh, some folks here are doing that. Um, I'll mention this. Uh, one person said, I'm going to get a whole hazmat suit, literally, to get out there and start cleaning this up, and I'm going to put up a sign, and I'm going to figure out a way to stop this from happening. Um, without mentioning who it is, brother, I'm glad it's you and not me. That's doing it, okay? <laughs> so thank you for doing that. If you want to see God at work, you want to see God using you, be prepared, and then get about doing faithful ministry and see what he does. And then 18 to 25, watch his spirit at work. Watch his spirit at work. Look at verse 18. And Zechariah said to the angel, now imagine, amazing as this is for Zacharias to have an angel appear out of nowhere, even more far-fetched for him is that his wife could get pregnant. He just, it's beyond, at this point, his sense of what is reasonable. How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. By the way, many have seen a parallel between Zechariah and Elizabeth and Abraham and Sarah. But unlike in Abraham and Sarah, who are beyond their age of childbearing, it's Sarah who doubts God. Here it's Zechariah who doubts God, right? It's the other way around. It's the man in this particular case. Um, and this is a rebukable thing to say because he lacks faith in God. Um, again, it's, it's not like he had a little sense in his spirit, you know, like what is the small, still small voice in his heart. And it could be right, it could be wrong. God sent Gabriel to appear to him in the holy place, all right? This is, this is God made it crystal clear, this is what I'm going to do. He has really no excuse for not believing other than the fact that we're sinners with hardened hearts and sometimes we doubt God. And his response is, I am Gabriel. Um, that's the first time we hear his name. Gabriel, by the way, only appears in one book in the Old Testament. That's the book of Daniel, in which he speaks to Daniel about this very thing, the coming of the age in which God will work, the end of the years, the 70 years and the coming of his powerful eschatological work, his end-time work. And then Gabriel appears again to say, and now it begins. But here is Gabriel, um, and Gabriel says, I stand in the presence of God. In other words, I'm not just an angel. I am one of the main <laughs> angels here who, dwell, who stands in the presence of God, and I have come specifically to give you this good news. Same word for gospel, euangelion. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak. Now, because you used your words, your tongue, to speak foolishness, <laughs> you're not going to use your tongue for nine months now. Um, you're not going to uh, say anything until these words are fulfilled. And uh, the people outside waiting are saying, where is Zechariah? He should be out by now. He's been in there for quite a while. They're wondering about his delay. When he comes out, of course, he is mute. And I think this might be the first example of sign language, Kina. I'm not sure. But uh, he comes out and does something to show them he saw this vision of an angel that appeared to him while in the temple. Um, and then he goes home. He's with his wife. So this is not a virgin birth like Mary. He's with his wife. She conceives, keeps it quiet for five months, probably because she's worried. Is this real? Is this really happening? Uh, and then says, in praise to God, God has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among the people. 
God's Spirit is at work. Now, one thing that may surprise you is this idea of discipline. Discipline. Um, understand, this discipline that Zechariah receives here is not the wrath of God, okay? It's not the eternal judgment of God. He is one who trusts in the sacrificial system, which ultimately is fulfilled through Jesus Christ, our Savior. This is the loving discipline of his Heavenly Father. Now, you might say, that's kind of harsh, don't you think? Well, in one sense, yes, but not really. He's unable to speak for nine months. I mean, it's not great. It's not the end of the world, right? Um, He doesn't lose the promise. He, He still is going to be the one who fathers John the Baptist, but it is God's correction for him. You're going down a wrong path, a path of disbelief when I have spoken to you, Zechariah, and now I'm going to correct you. And then he gets to see yet another miracle on the day that his son is born. All of a sudden, his lips, his tongue is loosened and he's able to speak from there. And as Christians, same is true for us. If you believe in Jesus as your Savior and as your Lord, there is no judgment for you. There is no wrath of God for you, all right? The judicial work of judgment has been paid for in full by the Lord Jesus Christ. But God, because he loves us, will discipline us. You see this in the book of Hebrews pretty clearly, Hebrews 12. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be wary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. We, shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as it best to them, but he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Anyone here who's been a Christian for any real length of time knows what I'm talking about, right? It's not the judgment and wrath of God, but the correction of God. You're going off path. Here's a little spanking (laughs) to get you back where you're supposed to be going and get you on the right path. It's actually an act of God's love. And in the same way, with our kids, not all discipline is punishment. We're teaching our kids. How do you grow up? How do you mature? When you drop your kids off for the first day of of kindergarten or or something like that, right? And they say, I don't want to go. I want to come home. And you say, nope, nope. You got to toughen up, hold back those tears, and go to school all day. You're not punishing them, but you are teaching them a form of discipline. You're teaching them how to grow up and mature. And the same is true of God. When we go through hard times, isn't necessarily punishment, but the Lord is in control and he uses that to shape us, to strengthen our faith, to keep our confidence in him, and keep our eyes in hope towards the end. But notice the Spirit of God at work here. Uh, not only the Spirit of God through this discipline, and that is the Spirit of God working in Zachariah's life, but also doing the impossible, doing the supernatural, doing the miraculous here. Uh, Again, God, you could have said, could have done this when they were in their 30s or 20s, right? But no, he waited until they're in their elderly age, let's say their 70s, 80s, who knows, before he decides to do this. Why? To show them that it is God and God alone who can do this. 
he who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine. It's the Lord at work here, doing what only God can do. And friends, expect, watch, to see God do the impossible. Um, I've seen God do the impossible a number of times in my life, but you know what the greatest miracle we get to experience in this life is? To see someone come to know Christ as Savior. When you think about it, even though we don't, in this side of heaven, it doesn't seem like quite the miracle that it is, I think we'll see it more clearly on the other side of glory. Nothing compares to that. Let's say someone you know and love has cancer, and by the grace of God, they are healed. That is an awesome miracle. And that will spare them pain and keep them in this world for another 30 years, 40 years, or whatever it is. But when someone comes to repentance and faith, their entire eternity is shaped by that. And we get to watch that happen, right? I, I get a front row seat as a pastor to watch people come to know Jesus and come from darkness to light to find grace and redemption in Christ. I know it in my own heart, but I get to watch what God does among his people. And what a glorious sight it is, friends. There is no greater miracle than that. And that's what John the Baptist has come to do, to prepare the way for the Lord Jesus and his work, which will save us from our sins. Sit back and watch the Lord's work. As I said, I think we do get sort of a, a bit of a picture here of how God works. First of all, he uses those who are seeking to do what's right in his eyes and pursuing him, but are broken and recognize their brokenness. Uh, we're broken in all different ways. He uses those typically who do faithful ministry, who are trying to serve him. Again, we don't make God work, but those who are actively praying and asking him to work, those who are seeking to serve, they're sharing the gospel, they're serving their local church, and then those who will sit back and watch the work of God. As I began, though, as amazing as it is to watch, to see what God does today, what God is doing in this passage is preparing them for the first Christmas. The first Christmas is what reveals to us that we are not alone. The world is broken by sin and darkness. And for 400 years since that prophecy in Malachi, they are waiting and waiting to see what God would do. And all of a sudden, the angel Gabriel begins by appearing to a basically unknown priest and telling him, your prayers are answered. And here we are 2,000 years later, celebrating Christmas, God in flesh, come to redeem us and save us. This Christmas, this Advent, let's celebrate the gospel. Would you pray with me? Our great and gracious God, thank you so much for Christmas and what it means, the Advent, the coming of the Lord Jesus. Lord, we don't live in a world that you have never entered into. We, we don't live in a world in which you don't know our pain. Experientially, you don't know our loneliness. You don't know our physical pain. You don't know the feeling of abandonment and betrayal. Lord, you know all this because the person of your son, Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, went through it. What is more, Lord, you know what love truly is. As Jesus in the flesh, born in a manger, born in Bethlehem, 
born to die, went to the cross, and he took the ultimate sacrifice. He went went into not only the holy place there on earth in Jerusalem and the Temple Mount, but the holy of holies in the heavens, and there offered himself as a perfect atoning sacrifice for sinners so that those who put their faith in Jesus find grace. And Lord, the promise is not just that we find forgiveness in this life, which is a glorious way to live, knowing that we are free from sin and guilt with a free, a clear conscience, but Lord, the hope of eternal life. Because those who belong to you, you will never leave nor forsake. You will never abandon. We will be with you forever. Lord, there is joy to the world because the Lord has come. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.